Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Join me in prayer, please. Father, you're enough. The Holy Spirit is enough. Jesus Christ is enough. Thank you, Lord, that in uncertain times and uncertain Days, Lord, in the midst of fearful trials, that you're enough. That you have made us citizens of heaven. That we don't have to be a slave to fear as we look around us at what's happening in our society, in our world. 
as we continue to be battered left and right by ever-changing dynamics, Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your kingdom persists. Use this word this morning, Father, I pray, to encourage us, to exhort us, to strengthen our walk, our desire to not simply pursue you, but, Lord, to pursue those who are being pursued by you. And, Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to continue in our series, Uncharted Territory, and for those of you who are guests, either online or or here with us in our worship center, I'd like to update you a little bit about where we've been in our series. Uh, Everything that we're talking about, in a sense, has been based on Lewis and Clark, Lewis and Clark, those two intrepid explorers that we can't distinguish one from the other. Their names are synonymous, almost uh, like uh, uh, using one word for Madonna, if you're uh, a soccer fan, Ronaldo, or, or something along that line, right? Lewis and Clark, we can't think of one without the other. And Lewis and Clark were tasked by Thomas Jefferson to find a water passage to the Pacific Ocean. It was essentially a way to mobilize military. It was a way to mobilize supplies. It was a way to mobilize settlers to, to continue to expand uh, across uh, this, this land that you and I call America. So they were tasked to find a water passage. And after traveling for more than a year, they ended up at the headwaters of the Missouri River with the expectation that they would go through Lim High Pass and pick up the watershed of the Columbia River on the other side. They, they, they had journeyed for month after month after month, enduring hardships and trials with the expectation and the mission that they would uh, uh, discover and, and, and then go down the Columbia River and open up this water passage that would connect east and west. In their minds, because they had never traveled that far, they had this concept, this idea that everything that was on the uh, other side in, in that Columbia River Basin would look just like what they had found in the Missouri River Basin and the Mississippi River Basin. That all that they had knew, knew all that they uh, uh, had been prepared for, all that they understood would continue to apply once they crossed the Continental Divide. But to their disappointment, they discovered that that wasn't so. Mary uh, Weather Lewis recorded this on August the 12th, 1805, about 216 years ago. He says, we proceeded on to the top of the dividing ridge from which I discovered immense ranges of high mountains still to the west of us. Their expectations were thwarted, were frustrated. And they soon realized that those things which had allowed them to progress to this point of the journey were no longer applicable to what would come next. Lewis himself had made his name as a river explorer. That was his strength. That was his skill. It was the reason that Jefferson had tapped him to lead this expedition. But as far as the eye could see, there were no rivers, just more mountains. It would have been easy for them to have surrendered and given up and said, well, our mission was to find a waterway. There is no waterway, so we'll just go back, and if they want to explore further, we'll have them recruit a team of mountaineers to to, to carry on. Uh, But they didn't. They they pressed on, and in order to press on, there were three things that they had to do. First, they had to abandon their canoes. 
They had to abandon their canoes. What had gotten them to that point would now, instead of being a blessing, would be a burden as they progressed on. They had to go off of the map. Everything up to this point had been charted. Everything from now on was uncharted territory. They had to go off the map. And then finally, as Pastor Jason has shared with us, they had to adapt or die. They had to adapt or die. They weren't prepared for living in in the, 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 the Rocky Mountains in the winter. They had to figure out a way to adapt, otherwise they were going to perish. And so for us, the lessons that we learn from the experiences of Lewis and Clark are that what got us here, right? What got us here? Christianity, Christendom, the church, what got us here might not be effective on the next leg of our journey. That everything that we've known or believed about how to be the church has to be reevaluated because we're in uncharted territory and that we have to adapt or die. We have to adapt or die. I'd like to take a minute to acknowledge that what many of you have been experiencing and you have experienced is real. The world that we, uh, as we know it, is changing at an ever-increasing pace. And things that we've valued have been lost. The rate of paradigm shifts exponentially increases with each generation. And it's hard to keep up. Sometimes it's simple things. My favorite show gets canceled right? Sometimes it's more complex things that, that, that laws or protections that, that, that I'd experienced and that we'd experienced are, uh, dissipate. In, in my role as lead staff pastor here, here at Fellowship, uh, uh, I, I think a lot about our budget. I, I think a lot about where we invest and how we invest and, and, and how we compensate and, and, and all of these things because every single one of them is important from an IRS perspective because if we transgress, if we cross a line, a protection that we currently enjoy of being a nonprofit could be ripped away from us. What we say from this pulpit, what we say in our classes, all impact that, that tax uh, exemption status. And we don't cower beneath it, and we don't fear it, and, and, and what have you, but we do have to weigh it and take it into consideration. The world is changing, and every year someone is filing a lawsuit to try to remove these protections that we enjoy. As a church, as individuals, we've been driving along, content in the knowledge of our surroundings, and somewhere we've taken a wrong turn and have ended up in unfamiliar surroundings. As Pastor Jason has been speaking in our first several uh, messages, he's used some, uh, some props, some illustrations to, to kind of highlight these changes. Uh, a a boombox we see over here. See how well the cameras track. This wasn't scripted. You know, the boombox, and now we have something better in our pockets. These phones, and now we have something better in our pockets. The video camera, now we have something better in our pockets. Change isn't always bad. Progress isn't always threatening, right? There are many, many things that we have today, like penicillin, like germ theory that that, uh, others didn't have. And oftentimes, that which we have in our pocket proves superior to these technological items. But is that always true? Is that always true? Uh, do, you remember, do you remember these things? Yeah? CDs. CDs. Uh, I, I don't use CDs anymore. I don't have a CD player anymore because what I have in my pocket 
supposedly is better, right? And so I use uh, uh, Spotify, and I can pull up any song that I want on Spotify and listen to it, and apparently uh, Spotify is about to go to a lossless technology that I can have the privilege of paying extra for, and it'll be CD quality. Woo! Nice. But we think about things like this as this is surely better than this, right? I used to sell electronics. Uh, I, I was uh, uh, at one point in my journey a, a high-end stereo salesman, and I sold so many CD players because of the promise of that which is better. Now, you want to buy this particular uh, CD player because it, not, it doesn't have just dual digital analog converters. It has a quad digital analog converter set up. Okay? All right? <laughs> Sorry, listen to this. You can hear it. <laughs> I mean, that, that was kind of my life, selling those things. And I sold a lot of people on this as being better than this. But even these things have a compression algorithm that keeps it from being a, 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 as warm, as true, as clear to that which was originally laid down. It, it's, it's like listening. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor Jason. It, it's, it's like listening to music from a hospital speaker as opposed to listening to an orchestra performing live. As I was standing backstage, uh, uh, Jeff uh, Pittman was back there with me, read our scripture so well this morning, and he was talking about how lots of times we have our baby grand piano out here, and uh, just the difference in sound between this. So this is a Roland Jupiter 50. It's just the techiest of the tech. It has incredible sounds. It has uh, a range that, that's unmatched. It can uh, simulate multiple different kinds of instruments. But as nice as it is, as expensive as it is, as digital as it is, it just doesn't compare to the warmth of that baby grand piano because sometimes newer really isn't better, right? Newer isn't always better. And I think that that has an impact on us uh, as the church. Maybe there are ways that we've been doing things or seeing things that are less helpful, less impactful than the older way that's already laid out in Scripture. Another way to understand where we are versus where we've been is found in the word post-Christendom. Almost sounds like a breakfast cereal. Post-Christendom. <laughs> now with less sugar. <laughs> mm. I like it with my oat milk. Todd Bolsinger writes in Canoeing the Mountains that sociologists and theologians refer to this recently passed period as Christendom. The 1,700-year-long era with Christianity at the privileged center of Western cultural life. Reflecting on the work of Leslie Newbigin, the uh, British theologian and missiologist, Tim Keller describes post-Christendom this way. For a thousand years, the Western church assumed a mission model in which most people in the culture would feel some social pressure or at least see some social benefits of going to church. And the culture created people that had the basic furniture for a Christian worldview. That is, they usually believed in a personal God. They often believed in an afterlife, heaven and hell. They believed that they should be good and they weren't perfect and that therefore they did need forgiveness. 
You could call those the religious dots, believe in God, believe in an afterlife, believe in the moral law, believe in sin, and so the church could assume that people would just show up in church if they were invited, or they would show up in church maybe at Easter and Christmas, or maybe for weddings and funerals, and if they came, they would have a general respect for the Bible, they would have some basic understanding of these things, and that for us, we could quickly and easily help them to connect the dots to faith. But in the timeless words of Bob Dylan, the times, they are a-changing. Pastor Jason, that's uh, uh, this old uh, kind of a beat poet, music guy, folk singer. You can Google him. (laughs) The times, they are a-changing. People have been rejecting the church in ever-increasing numbers because of their perception of what they see the church doing, how they see the church behaving, what it seems to them that priorities and the focus of the church is. And when they reject the church, they're also rejecting Christians. Many times they're rejecting the church and Christians because they're proactively rejecting us in the belief, the anticipation that we're going to uh, reject them. That their lifestyle, those things that, that, uh, that they're engaged in or believing about themselves or even their identity don't line up to what they believe that we believe. And, and so rather than waiting for us to reject them, they reject us proactively. Other times they're rejecting Christianity, rejecting the church, rejecting us because they're rejecting anything that brings a sense of conviction or guilt or shame I, I, I don't want to feel this way. And rather than reevaluate or, or, or change my life, I want to do what I want to do. The heart wants what the heart wants. So I'm going to reject everything that's not in alignment to my own personal moral philosophy and outlook. It's like, and, and I know that we all do it, right? We get out of the shower and we stand in front of the mirror. I don't say we enjoy doing it, but we do it. (laughs) And upon finding things that you don't like or those things that embarrass you, instead of resolving to do something about it, instead of embracing change, it'd be like just turning off the light, right? That's many of the reasons why people reject the church while we're entering this post-Christendom environment. Another reason that people are rejecting the institutional church, though, is because they're not seeing a lot of grace. They're not seeing a lot of love. There's nothing attractive to them about the church and its members. When institutional church and Christians who adhere to institutional church models use their essence, their energy, their lives to fight culture politically, when people see Christians fighting for laws that protect the Christian way of life, that protect Christendom, when they see people self-identifying as Christians fighting one another across multiple social media platforms, they find nothing of value that would cause them to, be want, to, cause them to want to be a part of what we have. Sometimes people have rejected the church, rejected Christianity because of their alignment. But in ever-increasing numbers, people are rejecting the church because of ours. In a post-Christendom culture, we fear that the church has lost its influence. You ever wrestle with that, that the church has lost its influence, that it doesn't have the meaning, the power, the impact that it had when you were younger? 
We fear the church has lost its influence, and this isn't wrong. It has in many respects. To be more clear, the church as it's become in the West has become irrelevant to the post-Christendom world around it because by and large, the Western church has become about what happens within its walls as opposed to what happens out with those same walls. The institutional church is no longer where people go to find answers, healing, and hope for the things which are besetting them. But hear me clearly, while the institutional church may have seen its day come and go, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, as 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us, is just as relevant as it's ever been throughout history because of God's compelling mission of redemption and restoration. The church is an institution. May it die because the living church of God is yet living because he is living Paul, in our text that we read just a moment ago in Philippians 3, has a confidence in his flesh. He says, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I more so, let me tell you about who I am, who I am. And he begins to say, you know, he was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee, and when when we say that, it just kind of causes us to curl our lips, and we say it with some distaste because of ultimately where Pharisees uh, had had arrived. But in their day, in in that 400-year silent period, as the Pharisees arose, they arose to defend Scripture. They arose to to defend the things of God, to preserve the things of God against uh, the, the Hellenistic ideals and practices that were beginning to take over the world that they knew. They started as a good thing, but then they became institutional, bound by their laws and their rigid ways of doing things to the point that they were no longer engaging society. They were simply passing judgment upon it. And my friends, I fear that that's where the institutional church has arrived as well. Paul speaks of his confidence in the flesh concerning zeal of Pharisee, or concerning zeal persecuting the church. If anyone has any reason to boast I have it more so. But, but then he says this, which we could all say by heart because of its power. But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, you know that that word gain translates as privilege? I'm just gonna let that rest. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Sometimes we become agitated. Sometimes we become frustrated. Sometimes we become afraid because those things that for us represent Christianity and those things that for us represent church seem like they're on shaky ground, seem like like, uh, uh, the walls are closing in around us. If we don't have this protection and if the government doesn't do this and if this doesn't happen, what will become of us? We worry. 
If this party isn't in power, or if this party isn't in power, or if all parties are in power, or if none party, no parties are in power, what will become of us? And the Bible says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Paul speaks of his confidence in those things that were before, right? The institution of religion of which he was a practitioner at a high level. And he says, I don't put any confidence in that anymore. My confidence is in Christ. I want to be found in him. These things are important. Not my prestige, not my power, not my comfort, not my safety, but rather uh, I, I want to be, uh, 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 gain Christ, be found in him. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, so that I can share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. Wow. When was the last time any of us woke up, right? Climbed out of bed and the first thought of our mind was, boy, I sure hope I get to suffer for Jesus today. <laughs> I'll be honest, right? I might be transparent. I don't think I've ever prayed that. And yet for almost three decades, I've been a church leader. <laughs> that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. The church is an important and a vital part of God's plan of redemption. And, and, and those who are outside of our faith aren't our enemy. They're our opportunity. They're our harvest field. Tim Keller, his description of post-Christendom talked about how people, because of the way that society was organized and arranged and laws that were in place and things, that people had this understanding, a base-level understanding of religion, of Christianity particularly, right? So it made it easy for us to connect the dots. And so we, unfortunately, as the church, got in the habit uh, of if, if the world's our harvest field, that's our opportunity, we would stand at the door of the barn or of the silo with, with our, our name tags on and a smile on our face. And by the way, greeting is important. I'm not running that down, right? We want people to experience joy in us when they come. But we'd stand there and, and look to the horizon waiting for the harvest to come in. I think I see something, right? Somehow we, we took the word of Christ when he says, you know, to pray for laborers because uh, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few to mean that we needed to put more people here in the barn waiting for the harvest. Man, when it comes in, woohoo! yeah. And for a while they did, but now they're not. So what's that implication for us as a church of the living God? Newer isn't always better. These new habits, these new practices that we've adopted over the years to become more invitational and more attractional, that if we just have a better band and a better light show and, and, and not one fog machine, but two, maybe even three or four so that when people come, that they'll see what it must be like in heaven. They'll experience that, right? Woo! Because, hang on, I think I might see the harvest coming still. Right. Post-Christendom world has the same requirement as the pre-Christendom world. That's the older that's better. What we find in the scripture, the epistles, and the gospels, and the book of Acts. A post-Christendom world has the same requirement as the pre-Christendom world. We must become a missionary people. We must become a missionary 
people. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but I want you to think about how this church to which Paul is writing began. Paul was living out his life as a missionary. And he was trying to go into the regions of Asia and the Spirit of God would not let him, the Bible tells us. And he saw a vision of a Macedonian man begging him to come over, beckoning him to come. And so that's what they did. They crossed the Aegean Sea around Troas and ended up in Macedonia, there in Philippi. And it wasn't easy. There were things that took place in Philippi that, 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 that uh, were, were actually pretty wretched and pretty terrible. Uh, but it started out well. Paul tells us in Acts 16 that he went down to the river on, uh, on, the, on the first day of the week and there were people who were or on the Sabbath rather and there, and there was a group of people down there and, and, and they were praying and one of them that, that he met was a lady named Lydia. The Bible records that she was a God-fearer, a God-worshipper. What that means is, is that she wasn't Jewish, she wasn't Hebrew, but she was trying to live up to the expectations of the law and those things. So she was a very moral woman. She was a very religious woman. She's what we would say today, uh, a, a seeker potentially. Someone who, who knows some truth, but not all the truth. She's sensitive. And, and so Paul opened up the, the word and, and began to help her understanding. The Bible says that God opened her heart. She received the word. And her life was so transformed that she says, come, stay at my house. At the end of that passage, we see that the church is actually meeting in her house. She was a seller of purple, the Bible tells us, which means she was incredibly wealthy. And, and so from a socioeconomic standpoint, she's at the top of the heap. And the gospel was for her. Also then, as Paul and his group are, are ministering in the marketplace, kind of that live, work, and play mentality. As they're ministering in the marketplace, they came across a slave girl. Really, she came across them because she was following them. And the slave girl, she, she was suffering from oppression. Spiritually, she was oppressed because she was possessed by a demon. But soci socially, she was repressed because she was a slave. People were using her to make a profit. And Paul spoke and cast out her demon, and not only did she then receive freedom from her spiritual oppression, but she also received freedom from that other social oppression that was taking place, because she was of no benefit anymore. And if Lydia is up here at, the, at, at just the upper reaches of the social strata, socioeconomic strata, then this slave girl who has no name because she's just a slave was down here. She's representative of all the hurting and damaged people that cross our paths. And then you have the jailer. Because of what happened socioeconomically to the owners of the slave girl, they said, hey, this is wrong. You need to do something. They were taken, arrested, beaten, cast into prison, put into shackles in the inner prison, right, the, the worst of the worst, by a Philippian jailer. This Philippian jailer, he would have been a... Uh, a retired soldier. These civil service positions like this, the jailer position, were always given to Roman citizens and specifically Roman soldiers who had served really well. 
He had probably been decorated. Probably a valiant fighter. Not much moved him. He was unmoved by their plight. He beat them. And then after beating them, where they would be raw, he put them in shackles in the inner prison. He's just doing his job. But his life was transformed because in the midst of all of that, he had the witness of people under pressure declaring to Jesus that he's enough. In my mind, I think about the song of, 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 that Paul records here in Philippians 2. There are many who believe that this was an ancient hymn when he's talking about having this mind of Christ. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he goes on to talk about how he's exalted. And I can just imagine Paul in that prison just, just singing that song with Silas and lifting other psalms and hymns up to God in the midst of their abuse. And this jailer, the Bible tells us that he was hearing them and an earthquake came and, and it wrecked the prison. And the jailer who, who uh, thought that everyone was now going to flee was ready to take his life because the penalty for losing a prisoner was death. And he didn't want to suffer on a cross So he's ready to take his own life. When Paul cried out, do yourself no harm. We are all here. And he's representative, this jailer, of the bulk of the people that we're meeting these days. Those who call themselves the nuns, religiously skeptical, religiously cynical, religiously disinterested, religiously disengaged, It cost him nothing to beat them and torture him the way he did because he's not engaged. I don't don't care about their faith. But But he got to witness them full of grace in the midst of horrifying circumstances. And then not only that, but when this earthquake turned his world upside down, They could have escaped. They could have ran. They they could have walked out knowing that that, that the the penalty for losing a life, their lives as they escaped, was that his life would then be taken. It's like, well, hey, it's his own fault. He shouldn't be in this racket. And let's, let's just go ahead and go. We don't even deserve to be here. But instead, they lingered and said, hey, don't do yourself any harm, man. We're still, we're still here. How can we serve you? How can we minister to you? We, we, we think about the world that, that is changing every moment and, and we worry and we fear and we agitate. And we hurl bombs at each other across social media because I think we need to do this and I think we need to do that and they did that and that's not right. And, well, they did that and they had to, right? <sighs> But rather than fearing post-Christendom, rather than fearing post-modernity, rather than fearing post-truth, let us engage it as an opportunity from God to be his light, to be his voice, to be his word. 
The spiritually interested needs to be confronted with the word of God. That was Lydia. The spiritual captive needs to encounter someone willing to love them. That was the slave girl. And the spiritual skeptic needs to see grace, needs to see grace, experience grace before they will listen to it. In closing this morning, I want to leave you with five thoughts or encouragements on how we can uh, better become a missionary people living off the map. First, be honest. In all of your life, be honest. Not about others' issues that you're engaging until you've been honest about your own. Be honest, be transparent, be vulnerable. Be available, be available. We've often been poor missionaries because we spend our lives in the fast lane and we don't have time or margin to spend time with people, right? We're living at such a frenetic pace these days that the people that that Paul met in Philippi at the river and at the marketplace and and even in jail, that those people, we are zipping by at, at 90 miles an hour with little margin in our lives to really engage them because of those things that we're pursuing. Be available. Be available. Make time. Create margin to engage people. Be intentional. Maybe this should be A, actually. Be intentional. Pray. Pray. Make, make a list. Just uh, take, take a, a notebook and, and get before God in prayer and, and say, God, open my eyes. Who are those that, that you are calling me to be a missionary to? Who are those, Lord, that you've already been crossing my path with or you desire to cross my path with? Lord, Lord give me some names. Put some people on my heart. And write them down and begin to pray for them faithfully. Be intentional. Don't be an accidental missionary. Be intentional. Be loving. Be loving. Be loving. Having experienced forgiveness for our sins, how can we not then overflow with compassion for others and theirs? Be loving. I shared this last time I spoke, I think, in Romans 12. Beginning in verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I know I said there's five, and I've only given you four. So the fifth is this. Before you can be these things, you must be acquainted with the gospel yourself. Lydia, Lydia was a religious woman. People who looked at her thought, man, this lady's got it all together. From a business perspective, she's successful. From a social perspective, she had everything that anyone could ever want. Nice house. Nice clothes, right? She had it all. From a moral perspective, uh, people knew that she would, would treat them right because of the way that, that she had 
oriented her life morally, spiritually. And yet as amazing as all that was, it wasn't enough because she had not yet found the key that made it all worthwhile. Jesus Christ. As as amazing as her life was, it wasn't complete because she lacked Jesus. Everything that she had studied, everything she had understood, everything that, that she was seeking to worship all pointed ultimately to him as the culmination of the law, of the redemptive plan of God and of her faith. And when given an opportunity to respond to it, she did. And so that your life is not simply a regimented life oriented towards a certain moral standard in alignment to what you see other people around you doing, yet without power, yet without hope, yet without joy, my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is that like Lydia, God would open your heart to receive the truth of his word that you might be saved. That you might be saved. Don't look in the mirror this morning and then because you don't like what you see, turn off the light. Do something about it. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Father, this morning as we come to you, reorient our thinking that those things which disturb us, those things which incense us, those things, Lord, which cause us to pull up our soapbox and rant, those things, Lord, that we are afraid of losing, that we hold on tightly to, help us to count all of those as lost this morning. And and, and Father, rather than orienting our lives around all of those things that bear a semblance of faith. Humbly, Lord, let us today count them as rubbish and that our desire might only be to know you. To know you. And the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering. If there be any, Lord, here with us in the worship center or online watching at home or in their car or as they walk or run, Lord, I pray that you'd open their heart to receive the goodness of your word, but more importantly, Lord, the goodness of your person, that they might have eternal life. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.